Hey there, and welcome to Primed. This is a podcast about Amazon, brought to you by Jacobin Magazine. My name is Alex Press, and I'll be the host, though I'll always be joined by my producer, Sarah Hurd, as well as the guests who will guide us through the many facets of this enormous company. I decided to do this show because Amazon touches everything. There are its retail operations in the United States and around the world. There's Amazon Web Services, an engine of immense profits. But there's also Alexa, Ring, Kindle, Whole Foods, Recognition. There's the new MGM purchase. There's Amazon's interest in all sorts of markets. Healthcare, for example. There are the stories about Amazon's working conditions. For warehouse workers, for delivery drivers, but also for pilots, software engineers, mechanical turkers. Some of the problems with these conditions are well known, but some aren't. And given how many people work these jobs, the specifics of this exploitation deserve even more attention. There's also the company's impact on the environment. There's its collaboration with police departments. It's revolving door with the US government. And what about Bezos' extraterrestrial interests? It's impossible to keep track of all of this. I do some of that for a living, as someone whose day job is writing about labor, and it's enough to make you want to start taping newspaper clippings to the walls, breaking out the string, tape, drawing connections, trying to hold together all of the company's operations. The connections between its different parts, the incredibly far-reaching effects that it all has on the world. What it all says about the latest strategies and approaches at work among the capitalist class. While I may paper my walls with newsprint and blogs, who knows, maybe it would give my apartment a distinct look. I'm hoping that Primed will at least save you from that fate. I should say a little bit about myself. I work for Jacobin Magazine as a staff writer, though I've freelanced all over, from the New Republic to Book Forum to The Nation to none other than the Bezos-owned Washington Post. In fact, I wrote a piece there early in the pandemic that criticized Amazon's treatment of its warehouse workers. Jacobin is producing this show, but it is very much my idea. As I wrote about Amazon day in and day out, especially when talking to people who work under a regime that seems to have taken Karl Marx's account of 19th century factories as an instruction manual, I started to think a show like this one would be useful. Not everyone wants to constantly read about Amazon, and I want to create a resource for people who are trying to understand the company that plays such a big role in our lives. We'll break Amazon down into different elements and do episodes on those aspects. The format will revolve around my talking to people who know a lot about these topics, including workers, organizers, analysts, academics, maybe even politicians. So we'll have episodes on what the warehouse work is like, built around materials gathered by workers themselves. We'll have one on Amazon's business model and finances. We plan on one about the company's founder, Jeff Bezos, one of the richest people in the world. We'll look at the company's operations in New York City, which rejected the company's HQ2 site, and in Southern California, where it has effectively created company towns. And we'll look abroad too, because Amazon cannot be analyzed in just one country, nor can it be organized against solely at the national scale. Consider Primed an entry point for understanding the company that is reshaping, mediating, and controlling our lives and the planet. Before we jump into the first episode, I want to mention a few things. First, Primed is part of Jackbin Radio, which you can subscribe to on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review the show so people can find us. I've also launched a Patreon for Primed. You can find that at patreon.com backslash primedpodcast. I don't want to paywall any of these episodes for what I think are obvious reasons. This is information that I want people to have. So you don't need to subscribe on Patreon to hear the episodes. But if you want to support me in creating the show, ensure it's sustainable, and very effectively pressure me to spend more time on it, you can subscribe. There will be some stuff offered for subscribers. We'll have a Discord server, for example, which is a space where people can talk about Amazon, but also talk about whatever you want. When I did a show last year with the historian Gabe Winant on E.P. Thompson's book, The Making of the English Working Class, it was an extremely niche topic. But people listened, and when we launched a Slack for listeners to talk and share supplementary readings and so on, people used that as well. So this will be a similar experiment. Subscribers will also get research notes, recommended reading, or other relevant material, and I plan to post video of some of the interviews for Patreon subscribers as well. Though we won't be doing that for these first couple of episodes. So again, if you want to support the project, you can sign up at patreon.com backslash primedpodcast. For those of you who subscribe, I'd like to thank you now for doing so. We've also set up a Twitter account for the show. You can follow that to get notified of the latest episodes or other info or announcements. That account is at 
primed underscore podcast. Lastly, I'd like to thank Nate Roos for doing the music for the show. All right, without further ado, let's get to the first episode of Primed. We had two guests on for this opening episode. The first is Daniel Rajendra, who directs Athena, a coalition of 50-some organizations in the United States working to rein in Amazon's power. The other guest is Alessandro Delfonti, an associate professor at the University of Toronto who researches the politics of digital technology, especially in relation to labor. He has a forthcoming book with Pluto Press, which is titled The Warehouse, Workers and Robots at Amazon. So I'm really glad to have you both here. Um, this show is going to tackle different aspects of Amazon. Um, but I, to start, we really need to walk people through and I think get a sense ourselves of what the company actually is. Um, I, At least in my experience, when I'm talking about Amazon, usually I'm talking about some particular part of it. So we're talking about the facial recognition technology, or we're talking about Amazon as a monopoly. Um, but to take a step back, how do each of you characterize Amazon? What is it? Uh, hi, th- thank you for having me, uh, first of all. So I, I think it's uh, challenging to try to characterize Amazon as, you know, with one single definition. Um, it's a gigantic company. It's, I think it's a sen- the second largest employer, the, the second largest private employer in the world. Um, it has so many legs and different areas, uh, and it, it also changes very quickly by... Uh, through acquisitions um, or through um, you know uh, uh, innovation in what they in what they produce and sell, so the e-commerce um, leg is of course the one we're the most familiar with. Like most most of us are familiar with that. They're the biggest company in terms of e-commerce. Uh, they're also the biggest one in terms of providing uh, the technological infrastructure, the web infrastructure upon which other companies function. So, for instance, uh, whenever you use uh, Zoom. Um, you know, for 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 your, for a class or for for an event, uh, or or for or to, to catch up with your friends, or whenever uh, you catch a, a an Uber, you're using Amazon's infrastructure. So those companies rent uh, computational power and web space from from Amazon, uh, and then it has so many other uh, uh, again uh, um, uh, business areas where where it, where it is present, including. Uh, selling surveillance technology to law enforcement agencies, including being a major cultural producer, um, uh, you know, producing uh, TV uh, uh, and 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 more. Uh, it's also the one of the biggest platforms for third-party vendors, so other retailers can use Amazon's uh, websites and warehouses to sell their stuff. Um, I could go on. And on. Uh, I think I'm, I'm going to stop here, but I'm super happy to discuss the details of this. What, what I think is interesting to keep in mind as an initial kind of snapshot of what Amazon is, is that most of these things are integrated with each other. There wouldn't be, uh, you know, functioning warehouses without Amazon Web Services and the, comp- the computational power used there uh, to, to, to basically turn your order online into a delivery. Uh, uh, there wouldn't be survey, you know, the, sa- the sale of surveillance technology without that stuff being tested in the warehouse uh, to surveil workers. So I think it's it's an integrated system, and it's interesting to see how it grows and expands uh, as this behemoth uh, grows grows and expands uh, as a whole. Plus one to everything Alessandro just said. At Athena, we think about Amazon as the company in a company town, but thanks to all of the web infrastructure stuff that Alessandra was just talking about, we all live in that company town. And one of the things that I think uh, is particularly interesting about the way in which it's like company town 2.0 is the way everyone who lives in Amazon land, Amazon town, is creating value for the corporation. So obviously workers are creating value in the ways that you probably are pretty familiar with um, consumers. Amazon is the most intensely surveillance, um, sur- uh, data hungry of the big 
tech companies, they're just tracking you all across the web, whether you're shopping on Amazon or not. Certainly the God's eye view they have of all the retailers, as Alessandra was saying about third-party sellers, if you are a person who makes bespoke hand cream out of the lavender you grow in your garden, like totally good on you. The only way to really reach a mass number of customers is through Amazon. You can rely on Amazon for the fulfillment, as Alessandra was saying, but Amazon can come in and undercut you. They're also, they have their own brands, right? So they make their own apparel and their own electronics and whatnot. So they can use the supply chains they already rely on to, um, to copy the most successful businesses um, that they can see are successful and have growth potential that you can't see as a business. So there's all of these ways in which they're using data to um, essentially function as a private government, which is what the company in a company town does, right? It has this kind of controlling um, stake in the way in which everyone has has a place to live and so or a place in the in the social system. And so we think about the dangers of Amazon's power in that way. Right. And I'm sure you've both experienced this, but often, you know, when talking to people about Amazon, um, the first thing, people that aren't so aware of sort of the downsides of the company, the first thing they often bring up is, you know, yes, Amazon does seem too big. Um, Yes, I've heard bad things about the working conditions that we'll get into for sure. Um, But, you know, on the flip side, it's very effective. You know, how do they get that delivery to my door so quickly? Um, And so, you know, I just was having this conversation with a relative yesterday. They're like, you know, but at the end of the day, uh, Amazon has succeeded in pioneering a business model that others hadn't. Um, So what is your response to that when people say that? Because I think everybody cites this, but of course, in the United States, it's still one of the most trusted institutions in this country, right? Um, Recent polling suggests that while people do trust and appreciate that you can click a button and have stuff arrive on your door, um, that that doesn't prevent people from also wanting our public institutions to do their job and to rein in the the kind of power that Amazon has. So I think... um, one of the things that's really exciting about working on organizing around the harms that Amazon does to our society and our democracy and our economy is that possibility. Um, I would say a couple things. First, Amazon styles itself as an invention company. It's famously always day one. Um, and I like to point out all of the ways in which they are successfully inventing the 19th century. Like many of these business models that we're talking about are not new. They are simply things we jettisoned for the public good and basic human safety. So everything from the pollution that um, occurs in and around their facilities and across the goods movement chain to uh, the way that dirty energy powers Amazon Web Services to um workplace protections that people fought and sometimes died for um, in previous generations. Like there's nothing particularly new and innovative about working people until they drop, about um, destroying the environment around you. Athena co-founder Stacey Mitchell, who's co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, talks about Amazon as a toll collector, right? In order to proceed in any way in e-commerce, you have to pay your fealty to Amazon and pay your your taxes and like there's nothing innovative about being a private government in that way we call those things utilities and we regulate them accordingly yeah i mean talking about what amazon has borrowed from other companies reminds me you know before this episode i was reading an essay by the writer sam adler bell which was published in logic magazine this uh, sort of critical tech publication um and he talked about Amazon borrowing just-in-time production from Japanese car manufacturers as that being sort of a key, at least, if not the key, to Amazon's business model. Um, and I think it was an interesting way to start getting down into the roots of how Amazon organizes production. Um, Sam wrote, he writes, Amazon has risen to monopolistic dominance by shortening the critical time between the production and realization, i.e. sale of commodities. They're incorporating this just-in-time production um, so that the logistics network can minimize the amount of time that products sit still, you know, on the shelves of the warehouse. Um, and then he quotes a fulfillment center worker, which is what Amazon calls its warehouses, fulfillment centers. 
named Charlie. And Charlie says, the longer something sits and is, is not in motion, the less money Amazon makes. Um, definitely the idea that shortening the time um, and keeping commodities in motion in faster and faster cycles is definitely one of the roots of um, Amazon's business model. So I, th- I, I think the just-in-time example um, is, is very interesting. Also, uh, uh, the 19th century example is also very interesting. I want to say that Amazon is renewing industrial models that we have we have seen in the past. So you have the just-in-time production model, whereas consumption influences directly what happens in the in the workplace uh, to kind of like foster this one instant one-click consumerism culture. Um, then you have the extreme tailorism, which means you know analyzing the labor process in a, in an effort to improve it, and instead of having supervisors walking around with a stopwatch uh, and a notebook and you know trying to you know uh, analyze the the movements of a worker's hand now you have the automation of those processes where amazon includes more and more sensors more more and more algorithms that uh, track what people do in which way and and how that can be uh, sped up um, uh, and then you have the 18th uh, sorry 19th century or early 20th century uh, you know industrial capitalism based on uh, the mass worker, uh, fast cycles of turnover, wearing people uh, out uh, and just like squeezing whatever value you can before you 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 you, you either uh, push them to quit or, or fire them and, and hire the next person, um, and then the despotic sort of politics you have inside the workplace to to keep that model functioning. So you you cannot have workplace democracy if you base a, if you base a workplace uh, on extreme extreme rates of turnover and extreme uh, rhythms of work. So I think I think Amazon takes uh, uh, practices from the history of industrial capitalism and renews renews them through digital uh, technology. Um, then there is also the the mail order model, of course. So they basically put online the mail order model that's been around for even for centuries. We, we can say at the very least from the late nineteenth century. Yeah, and um, and then there's of course the piecework of delivery, um, which is really not dissimilar from shirt waists or whatever um insert your romantic immigrant garrett here um i would add that in thinking about amazon recapturing all these previous models of industrial capitalism it's important to note that um we get these mega firms like Amazon in the United States because there's such a patchy patchwork of regulation and enforcement of existing regulation. It's kind of the expansive basket of neoliberalism, right? You've obviously got shareholder max, right? The idea that the corporation is only designed to maximize value for shareholders, but you've also got the Bork approach to antitrust, which is the consumer or the price of the for the consumer is the overriding consideration in thinking about size of cor- of firms um you've got all of the union busting that i imagine your listeners are much more familiar with in thinking about reaganomics and the reagan thatcher revolution um and and all of that is built on racism i mean it's ba- built on lots of other things too but it's particularly built on racism in the united states that um we have this idea that uh, the communities that are receiving Amazon fulfillment centers in this in this moment should be grateful for any job that they can be treated as they are in the by the those employers. That comes from these ideas that black workers should be treated as they were when um, plantation slavery was part of the industrial capitalist process. That um, there is a almost divine right to run the economy for the benefit of the corporation or of its executives in ways that are incompatible with democracy and that democracy is friction when they're committed to frictionlessness. And so it feels important to raise in this moment that it is American racism and the way that American racism is uh, shot through in our entire policy framework and our lack of enforcement around our policy framework that has allowed corporations this powerful to emerge. There's a reason we don't see them emerging, I think, in quite the same way in other parts of the world, although there are very large corporations doing terrible things that are based in other parts of the world, too. Yeah. 
And I want to, I mean, we should definitely touch on the role of race and its role sort of in organizing models um, that workers themselves have been forging over the past couple of years. But Alessandra, I want to ask a little bit more about sort of the production on the warehouse floor, the model, because that's what your research focuses on. And you mentioned it already, sort of like high turnover rates. I have a couple questions, you know, for one, is the high turnover rate at Amazon intentional? I mean, workers talk about having 100% turnover within like six months or within the year, right? And so does Amazon want that high turnover? And if so, then, you know, what are the reasons for that? The, I, definitely, there are studies that say that in, in, in some, in some um, especially from the states, that say that in some, in some areas, Amazon fulfillment centers have a, have a turnover rate over 100% per year, which means that basically they changed it. On average, they change their entire workforce every every single year. Uh, and that, that may not take into account the, uh, the seasonal workers who are hired around Prime Day or Black Friday or, or, or the, the, the winter break with Christmas and so on. Um, and those may work with contracts that last for weeks or, 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 or a few months. So that's, that's, that's also turnover that's built into this flexible system that uh, uh, needs to accommodate consumption needs rather than uh, workers' needs. Um, but definitely, there are practices that Amazon uh, uh, puts in place that have to do with fostering this turnover. There was there was a there was a news uh, uh, that came out a few a few days ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago, uh, that um, basically unveiled that Amazon managers have this um, task they call hire to fire. So they have a metric like how many people did you hire, how many people did you fire, and that's used to uh, uh, you know to uh, basically calculate how good a manager you are so how how good are you of, of, at fostering turnover at increasing turnover they have programs uh, that push people to live voluntarily and this is especially important in in jurisdictions like you know in most european countries where people who are hired full-time cannot be fired as, at will so maybe in a place like the states uh, or or in a place like canada this is this is less important but amazon has programs uh, where they pay workers to live. So it's sort of a severance uh, package um, built into the, the system Amazon has. It tends to be 1,000 euros or $1,000 per peak. Peak means the, the fall season until the end of the year where Amazon increases its business uh, exponentially. So per each, each, each year you spend in, 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 a, in a fulfillment center, uh, including that period, give, gives you $1,000 when you decide to leave. Um, Amazon pays for your educa- contributes to paying for your education if you want and this is unique in the sense that it doesn't train you to um, uh, up you know to upskill and move up the ladder inside the company but rather it trains you to 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 quit and get a, and get a better job outside um, um, and then of course there are reports on on about workers because of the physical nature uh, of their of their work uh, because of the repetitive nature of their work because of because of the injuries because of, of of how bad it is on your body and also because of this uh sort of despotic environment they experience and also because of the frustration in never being able to actually move up the ladder and and you know build a career for yourself in one of those places uh they they quit in droves um so they voluntarily quit in droves so so i think there is a system where amazon has institutional institutionalized some ways to uh, uh sort of accompany workers to the door and it's also a system where people uh, leave, like lots of people leave voluntarily. Um, so some of the warehouses are, I'm, I'm familiar with, they, they, they've been around for 10 years uh, and there is almost no one left from the first uh, wave of hires. Um, so it's, it's a rarity to find someone who's been there more, for more than three or four years, which tends to be more or less the sort of cycle for, for the full-timers. Then for seasonal workers, it's even shorter, of course. So just a, just a quote from, from a worker I interviewed, I'm quoting uh, from, from, you know, just from, from my memory. Uh, we thought we would retire at Amazon, but the truth is we, we need to quit if you want to ever retire, to get to retirement age. Um, um, so there is something about, you know, the, the hope that you would actually build um, your entire life around that workplace. And then the, that hope is frustrated by these, by these like rhythms and turnover. Alex, can I add something? Of course. So I think that part of what I'm, what Alessandro just said made me think about is like the ways in which the boundaries of Amazon are sort of porous, right, around the rest of the low-wage labor market. And so um, in the States that, you know, they've they've made a big deal about how they pay 15 and that, that 
if you compare that to other low wage work like McDonald's or Walmart or whatever before Walmart raised their wages, it was a better it was a better job rather than comparing it to logistics, which overall had a higher standard. Um, and I think that that kind of leveling around the workplace experience is something that they are exporting. Um, like they're leveling it down, just to be clear. They're making work worse for everyone. And um, they're exporting it in the ways that Alessandra was talking about earlier, through products and services to other corporations as the second largest private sector employer in the United States and um, exporting it through international networks because they are so they're exporting the American labor relations model, which is already more authoritarian than almost any one else on earth. And so um, when we think about the Amazon production model, we can think about it as reinscribing those kind of 19th century standards um, or 21st century standards. Um, they're such a force for that. And they borrow all of the opportunities, the market opportunities, the governance opportunities through trade to advance that, which redounds not only to Amazon, but in fact, to the system it's embedded in. Right. I mean, I think it's it's interesting that we keep sort of bringing things back to like the 19th century, um, because certainly when you look at how Amazon sort of organizes labor on its shop floors and across its sort of productive system, you know, it's hard not to think about Marx. Um, you know, it's sort of the logical conclusion of a lot of the trends he's sort of laying out in capital, right? And I was reading a paper Alessandro wrote about a warehouse that he had been sort of doing research on. He'd been meeting with union activists and workers. Um, and there was this line, Alessandro, where you say, machinery becomes an alien power that rules over workers, making them mere, quote, living appendages, as Marx would say, of a labor process whose organization is governed by algorithmic management. You know, and this, the line, the, the Marx line about living appendages to machines, you know, I've always thought of like a worker who has, you know, a person whose one arm is super developed because that's the one they're using for work. It's, a, you know, they're sort of falling over all the time um, because our, you know, bodies are actually being molded by the needs of the company itself. Yeah, I think there is, um, uh, well, thank you for quoting my article. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, there is something about Amazon making that image kind of kind of come to life, as you, as you say, uh, because lots of processes that have to do with organization of labor um, uh, are outsourced to technology. Um, and human labor is increasingly re reduced to simple tasks that are commanded uh, and directed uh, and monitored by uh, technology. Um, so I think there is something about becoming the, the just, just the appendages uh, of machine because workers feel like they're taking away um, Lots of the things that make one that make one's labor meaningful and interesting, um, and and all that stuff is increasingly outsourced to robots or algorithms. And what they do is simply simply performing the the last step of the process, like picking a commodity, because the technology is not uh, developed enough yet to have a robotic arm. Although Amazon Amazon is working on that, of course. Um, so I think there is something about you know reducing the human. Uh, to these increasingly standardized, small, last mile or last, last, uh, uh, you know, last foot, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, processes. Yeah. And you mentioned some of these processes being very basic and simple. Um, but I realize we haven't actually laid out what are the jobs in the warehouses in particular? Like, what are the positions? Stower, picker, what are these things? I think a lot of people don't actually know what these jobs look like. Um, the, 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 the two main areas are inbound and, and, and outbound, so receiving items and then, and then uh, shipping items, as you can imagine. Um, so in, in inbound, it's about uh, unloading, the, unloading the trucks and then sending the commodities that were stored in those trucks inside the warehouse to store them on the shelves. So imagine uh, a gigantic multi-floor area lined with shelves, uh, or if, if the, the, the warehouse is more automated, uh, robotic shelves, but still. So the stowers uh, are the workers who kind of walk around with a cart full of stuff and just uh, store it sort of randomly um, in, uh, on the shelves. 
So the most important thing they do is that they use a barcode scanner to record the position of something. So they they scan the barcode on the commodity, they scan the barcode on the on the barcode on the cell where they place it, and now the system knows that your you know this uh, phone cover, uh, Hello Kitty phone cover, is stored in cell Y in in AL fifty four, and then the pickers are the part of outbound. So they also work around with a with a barcode scanner, which communicates to them, go pick that uh, Hello Kitty phone cover in uh, cell X in AL44. So they go pick it, scan it, uh, so retrieve it, scan it, and then send it to, to, to packing and shipping. Um, so pickers and stores represent, especially pickers, represent the, the most massive uh, numerous um, kind of job. Um, so especially dur- during seasonal peaks, uh, the masses of workers um, Amazon hires uh, as temp workers tend to work as pickers, especially in also stores. Um, so in a big fulfillment center, you may have, you know, at any given time, hundreds of pickers uh, retrieving commodities and sending them to packing and shipping. And then eventually that uh, box or, uh, or, or package will be uh, uh, delivered to your door. The overriding sort of complaint that people have beyond the physical complaints, which is its own thing and is very serious. You know, they're not only, you know, does it does working on a warehouse for Amazon mess up like your feet and your back, but there's also just incredibly high rates of injuries and and fatal injuries that Amazon um, has been shown to actually hide um, and obscure in a number of ways. But in fact, it's its rate of serious injuries is double the industry average. Um, but the other complaint beyond that is this sense of, you know, the word robot gets thrown at, around a lot. Workers feeling like they're treated like robots, um, that Amazon, as you said, is in fact just biding its time until it can invent machinery that can replace workers whole cloth. Um, and to go back to that, to this paper I was reading by Sam Adler Bell, you know, he quotes what one Amazon worker wrote on Reddit. Um, which, you know, there were these protests going on in Europe under the banner that said, we are not robots. Um, And one Amazon worker wrote on the internet, I'm not a robot, but sometimes I wish I were one. Life would be so much easier and I would be much more pleasant to work with if I had no emotions or pain, Uh, which is just an absolutely heartbreaking um, thing to even think. Um, And so, you know, as we talk about Amazon, you know, I just... I asked the specifics of these jobs because I think it's really important to sort of ground the discussion of this business model in like the very serious human impacts that are happening. Um, And these come up again and again in sort of accounts by and about workers. Um, And we haven't even gotten to, I think we should at least touch on also the delivery driver model that Amazon relies on. You know, Amazon, as Dania said, is sort of this company, like we all live within the empire of Amazon is how I often phrase it. We're all residents. Um, and that means, you know, the workforce is very sprawling. And of course, it's impossible in one hour to even get into all the different types of jobs. You know, Amazon has its own pilots flying its cargo around. Um, it has, you know, there's Amazon Turk, a somewhat <laughs> extremely dystopian model um, where people are paid, you know, a few cents an hour, sometimes a few cents a task um, to complete tasks over the Internet. Um, but the delivery drivers are a pretty significant chunk of the workforce here. And they're notable, especially because they are not direct employees of Amazon. So Amazon makes use of third-party contractors. It calls them delivery service providers. Um, and it, it keeps a pretty serious lock on the working conditions in terms of employment for those workers, even though they're not direct employees. So, you know, they Amazon recently, it was reported, had directives telling their parent companies of these drivers that they couldn't be unionized. You know, there were certain terms of employment down to cleanliness of the driver's fingernails. Um, So really, you know, despotic control, given that they're not even an employer. Um, But that also is a big part, I think, of Amazon's sort of, quote unquote, innovation or invention here is getting around, say, unionized UPS drivers, right? Bringing the pressure onto the driver workforce so that you can, in fact, get things to your door within, you know, a few hours or even an hour in certain places. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, uh, that's a good point. I think it also, uh, well, you capture some of the, some of the dynamics there. Uh, I think you, you may also, in, in some countries, you may witness the opposite phenomenon, though. Um, so, for example, in my, in my um, home country, Italy, um, 
you because Amazon contracts these these delivery third you know, third party delivery companies, all of a sudden they have to deal with a sort of a militant workforce which is unionized and and, and in mo- in some cases unionized by radical um, sort of autonomist unions uh, like Cicobas, which is one which is one of the most important in- independent unions in the logistics sector. So all of a sudden you 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 have more worker power in that specific bottleneck. So maybe you can't stop the warehouse. Uh, because it's difficult to organize like an, an effective strike in that place, but all of a sudden you can stop delivering the entire city of Milan uh, because you control you union control the the ten smaller uh, you know kind of warehouses or deposits where those companies operate and and those workers are not directly controlled by Amazon. So I think in, in some countries you have the op- the opposite effect, and then there is of course the misclassified independent contractors working for the app that. Uh, Amazon uh, uh, owns Amazon Flex, uh, which is basically your your average gig economy app, uh, pretty much like Fedora or Skip the Dishes or or what have you. Um, so very similar. You download the app, and all of a sudden you start delivering for Amazon as an independent contractor. Um, so those workers are like other, like very similar to other workers in the so-called gig economy, uh, pretty much dependent on that technology and. Uh, they can be uh, disposed of at, at will just by being disconnected for, disconnected from the app. Um, so it, you're, you're even further away from, uh, you know, achieving uh, any any kind of workplace democracy, any kind of unionization there. Yeah, I mean, the stories about delivery drivers in the United States are heartbreaking. Like there was that story about workers hanging their phones in trees to try to get enough work in the sort of economic devastation of last year. Why were they hanging their phones in trees for people who missed this? In in order to have the app give you the job of delivering XYZ package or packages, you have to um, click on the you have to you have to use your phone to get the job, kind of like an Uber driver or a Lyft driver would. And so they were hanging their phones in trees to kind of get the jump on being getting the notification to get the gigs because there were so many gig workers. And this is in that first flush of COVID in the United States where other low-wage work had just evaporated. And of course, everyone who was driving for Uber and Lyft faced, um, you know, unemployment without any safety or security net. And so, so there's that kind of desperation that comes with piecework because you can't count on a regular income um, which is its own form of despotism, you know, I think, and very much related to the national conversation we're having right now in the United States about unemployment benefits and, and the, the bald assertions of, of employers about their expectation that people work in dangerous and often demeaning conditions for very little pay and almost no security. And so um, Amazon is in that competition for that, that labor, in that labor market as well. Alessandro, did you have something to say? I, I think that's the, that's another similarity to sort of like early industrial capitalism in that you Amazon disposes of this reserve army of workers that are key, of course, for it to keep up with the turnover rates it has. So without the availability of masses uh, of sub- especially suburban uh, migrant populations, um, who are willing to take up precarious jobs, you know, even for weeks, Amazon wouldn't wouldn't be able to fulfill the promise of delivery uh, it it makes to the to the consumer. So there is a direct relationship there between the availability of these masses of workers uh, and Amazon's turnover rate, and then the promise of quick and smooth fulfillment. So those things are also very much integrated. Uh, I think it's interesting to keep to keep that in mind too. You know, again, moving to the 19th or early 20th century uh, or, or, you know, post-World War II, early industrial capitalism in Europe, uh, Amazon buses in hundreds of workers um, from towns and neighborhoods, like, you know, away from, from, the, from the fulfillment center uh, to, to fulfill its own need for bodies. Um, so it's literally a system where people are, are willing to commute through a bus, maybe owned by a temp agency, uh, to staff the warehouse around, you know, Prime Day, for instance. So really this is something that reminds me of, uh, again, early industrial capitalism, masses of uh, migrant populations moving around, uh, 
be it uh, freed enslaved from the south of, of the states or being it people from uh, uh, southern Europe and, and the Middle East moving to northern uh, Europe, the more industrialized countries. So very similar in a sense. So, Alessandro, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the opportunities that the deliveries driver model has it poses for workers in Italy, uh, because I want us sort of in the back half of this conversation to talk about, um, I guess I would say what what potentials there are and what the organizing efforts on the ground actually are at this point. Um, and, you know, in thinking about doing to in focusing on Amazon, you know, there's a lot of hesitancy in some quarters of the left as well as the labor movement to really take on Amazon front and center. Um, this is an incredibly powerful corporation. It's, you know, operating at the global level, helmed by the richest man on the planet. Um, and I think there's a belief genuinely that we just can't win, right? And, you know, it's usually we can't win right now. Um, so we shouldn't take on losing fights. Um, and, you know, I think that might be a bastardization of the sort of thinking, but at times that's sort of effectively what it looks like, whether we're talking about unions or we're talking about, you know, any kind of organizations. Um, so, you know, in doing this show, I really want the perspective to be, you know, where are the wins we can get? What is actually happening and what are the fights people are taking on? Um, so I think just opening with that, Dania, you know, what do you think about this? You know, your organization is formulated around fighting Amazon as a coalition of, of existing organizations. Our, at Athena, our pitch to organizations to join up with us or to work with us is not stop what you're doing and work on Amazon because they're the biggest bad on the block. It's that whatever you care about, whether it's uh, fair and affordable housing, whether it's um, reducing or eliminating police budgets and abolishing the police, whether it's advancing decent and dignified standards for work, um, whatever it is that you care the most about um, in the short term, which presumably for listeners of this podcast are about non-reformist reforms for the long term, um, you know, our pitch isn't stop doing that and work on Amazon. It's that whatever you're doing on those things, Amazon is making it harder and making it worse. And there's no way to win on those questions without also tackling Amazon. Um, it is possible to win. Um, Athena member Media Justice and the rest of the folks at Athena who work in particular on surveillance and in the intersection of surveillance in the community and surveillance at work. Um, uh, we pressured Amazon to renew its ban on selling its creepy facial recognition product, which they call recognition, um, to local law enforcement. It's a ban they self-imposed last year after the murder of George Floyd and was set to expire and they renewed it um, as we announced our pressure campaign about it. So we're pleased about that. And of course, not stopping there. This is why we need, you know, government regulation around facial recognition products, um, not just at Amazon, but everywhere. Um, and I would add that for people who are interested in refashioning a thick and rich vision of what another order and what we might be fighting for medium term um, or long term. If Amazon were democratically controlled, for example, we could, whoever controlled it, a group of stakeholders could uh, prioritize um, speedy delivery of necessary objects for people who need them. So you could imagine diapers or medicine or whatever that is organized on social needs. And that then, you know, the Hello Kitty phone case or the cat toy might take three weeks to get to you because probably you'll be okay without those, but that we've prioritized the possibilities inherent in this operation around what communities and what people need. And I think that in some ways only Amazon offers us that. Like embedded in the idea of robotics is the idea that people might have more leisure and that we might be more free. And um, that's a really amazing thing to start to think about. But we can't win that if we just leave the future of, of the production of all of that to people like Jeff Bezos, who particularly is very clear that we are hitting planetary limits. Capitalism is hitting planetary limits. And his solution to that includes, no joke, 
space exploration. That's why he owns Blue Origin, right? Is to foster a continual expansion in the face um, of what he suggests might be gray and dismal limits around um, what he calls rationing, but I think what any rational person would call redistribution. Yeah, I mean, I often feel like I sound somewhat conspiratorial when I start talking about Bezos's um, extraterrestrial interests, but it really is actually a material question in that when people are pushing for Amazon to, you know, quote unquote, do the right thing, um, it's relevant that the CEO of this company, who still controls its path in a really in a really serious, powerful way, you know, believes the solution is to environmental problems, for example, especially and resource um, sort of scarcity is for people to live in space um, and does not believe there's any responsibility to sort of take action on Earth because that's the ultimate goal, right? So if that's the case, then you'll never force a capitalist like Bezos to do anything right. And it's actually he's going to have to be forced by the state and by the public. Yeah, I mean, I think um, Amazon is is an incredibly useful object of study to understand how capitalism is functioning now. Like how much does it depend on the external inputs of public subsidies, of environmental devastation, and um, the the symbiotic relationship that Alessandra was detailing earlier of the profits from AWS and increasingly from their monopolistic control um, of third-party vendors to allow for the kind of growth in the marketplace that we're pr- primarily discussing, that it's a um, it's an interesting challenge to appropriate the 19th century analysis for the 21st century production because the majority of the profits are in fact not made by the immiseration of the people that we're talking about producing that, right? And so like, how do we understand that in relation to the speed of the throughput and the reducing the friction that data allows, like, this is a really complicated moment for capitalism. And it's hard to understand. And I think that looking at Amazon helps us kind of learn about both how it's functioning, and how, you know, I think in the spirit of our tradition, embedded in that are the seeds for what we might have for some better, um, better reality in which everyone has the opportunity to thrive without having to go to another planet. I think the, the space exploration um, um, idea is, of course, very interesting in terms of like understanding how, how capital cannot accept any limits and will do anything to move around to, to avoid those limits. Uh, there is also something about, it's not, it's not only about material um, or financial limits to growth. I think there is there is also something about uh, political limits to growth. So in, in, its, in its search for more market freedoms, capital will also do whatever they can. So the, the, the idea of like moving warehouses to the moon or, or colonizing Mars uh, through, through a private corporation um, is not that different from uh, ideas that have been circulating, for, for example, among Silicon Valley uh, billionaires in terms of, for example, building uh, an island state, independent island state in the middle of the Pacific Ocean to avoid completely uh, the you know, you know, state regulations and taxation. Um, so ideas that have been circulating for probably for centuries, but you know, in, in the latest you know, kind of incarnation of, the, of global capitalism, uh, for sure for the last couple of decades. Um, so I think there is something about avoiding limits also politically, which is very interesting. Uh, it's, it's, a, um, it's a major, of course, driver of globalization. Um, so going where labor is cheaper, uh, more flexible, uh, and so on and so forth, or production uh, can be, can be uh, uh, push, um, you know, performed regardless of any environmental regulations, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think the push to the space or building your own island state is also part of that in terms of like finding new market freedoms wherever they they're available. Right. I mean, I you're totally right to talk about this. this is just sort of an extreme version of what the operating model already is, which is, you know, Amazon to the best of its ability, you know, tries to control the state as it exists already in, you know, in the United States, for example, you know, there's state capture at every level from you know, the county board in in Ohio somewhere that's deciding whether to accept a proposal to, you know, build a data center or a a fulfillment center. And they're deciding how many subsidies to give Amazon. And, you know, Amazon doesn't even have to be in the room to be in their heads, right? And to say, you know, we we don't want people to see us as not 
giving jobs or opportunities and promises for jobs. So we're just going to give everything to Amazon. They're not going to have to pay X, Y, and Z taxes. You know, there won't be oversight. Maybe even the construction of the facility won't require um, unionized workers in construction, so on and so forth, all the way up to obviously the national and international level of Amazon's permeation um, there as well. And yet, despite all of that, which, you know, will be a rich vein of analysis, I'm sure, in future episodes and is something that is a constant sort of problem um, that is if you're looking at Amazon's operations, people are still resisting Amazon. Um, I obviously write about labor um, and that is a big focus when we talk about, even though there are other sort of um, fights going on at Amazon, you know, against monopoly and sort of among antitrust advocates, say, um, uh, Dania referenced the, the efforts around facial recognition. Um, but, you know, I think one thing that certainly has gotten a lot of attention is efforts by warehouse workers to organize. Um, and I'm just curious if if from each of you sort of what where you see these efforts going. And I'm sure listeners are aware of some of this stuff, so I won't go into it too much. But, you know, much of the attention came from uh, union drive that was happening in Bessemer, Alabama, which, you know, is the deep south. It doesn't actually have that low of a unionization rate relative to other states in the south, um, but still pretty miserable. About 10% of workers in Alabama, I believe, are unionized. Um, And Amazon workers there within some maybe six months of their facility opening, um, it opened in March of 2020, they had reached out to to RWDSU, um, a union that has some representation among poultry plant workers um, in the area. And you know, they hit the ground running. They ran a serious union campaign. There was a National Labor Relations Board vote um, and they lost that vote. And, you know, currently, as we're recording, there are hearings going on. Um, the union and the workers allege, you know, completely illegal tactics by Amazon, in addition to all of the very legal ones um, that companies can run to bust unions. Um and so, you know, that brought a lot of attention, right? Because I, no existing union had in the United States, at least, had taken on Amazon at this level yet. You know, it's a very anti-union workforce and none of the warehouse workers in the U.S. are unionized. Um, and efforts like that are happening, you know, all across the country in different forms. Um, you know, there's a particularly well-organized warehouse outside of Minneapolis um, that organizes with a worker center, a wood center. Um, and it's particularly Somali workers there who, you know, sort of won bargaining power, actually, even though Amazon doesn't say that's what happened. Um, They demanded, you know, um, changes in their workflow based around religious um, celebrations and religious sort of requirements that they had. And Amazon agreed because, you know, they actually had serious power on the shop floor. Lots of workers agreed with this demand and they got organized. Um, And so fits and starts, right? You know, in other places, people are fired for organizing, you know, famously, in New York City, a worker, Christian Smalls, was fired very early into the pandemic um, for raising the alarm about the lack of COVID protections among his coworkers. Um, and yeah, Amazon fired him and actually Bezos and the, the so-called S team, the executive force at Amazon, you know, were personally involved in trying to craft the media campaign to discredit Christian. Um, and so, you know, I'm curious what your what your perspectives from where you both sit are about you know, what we should expect going forward from these organizing efforts, but also, you know, other fronts that are being waged. Yeah. So um, Amazon fired a a number of folks alongside Chris, including Gerald Bryson. And um, we're very pleased that New York State Attorney General Tish James has taken that up and is enforcing the law uh, that protects New York workers. Um, Awud is a co-founder of Athena and a leader in Athena. as are a number of the other um, worker justice efforts throughout the Amazon footprint in the United States. And I think, Alex, you're going to spend some time looking at Southern California in particular, which is a place where Amazon has really emerged um, monstrously as a force in the local economy as both an employer um, and a retailer. And so I look forward to listening to that episode in particular. And I think if you look at both at Southern California and at some of these other examples that you were talking about, what you see is, again, a porousness about um, that challenge. So I come out of the labor movement, um, the U.S. labor movement, and when you're taught to organize workers 
or at least when I was taught to organize workers in the in my training as a, a union staffer, it really like there's a really strong boundary between people who work in the facility and other kinds of people who might be around. And I think one of the things that we're learning at Athena, and I think we're learning in general, right, um, is that that boundary is not as porous as we once thought it was. That part of Awud's success is in the cultural and regional um, ties that keep that community together and therefore form a community of current Amazon workers, former Amazon workers, and prospective Amazon workers alike that builds the power of the people who work in the facility to bargain um, because they are held by a community that's bigger than just those folks there, for example. It's a thing. Um, Abdi Musse, who's the executive director, is really thoughtful about. And despite the fact that Amazon also fired um, Bashir Muhammad, who worked um, at Amazon, at, this is the way that Athena is constructed, right? Uh, Amazon was threatening to fire Hibak because she was raising similar concerns to the kinds that led to the firing of a number of frontline Black workers around COVID protections and lack of COVID protections. And we mobilized thousands of people across the United States to tell Amazon that we were watching them, that they were using this workplace surveillance around time off task um, to allege that Hibak wasn't doing her job and that we could see that happening in real time. And she still has her job. So that's great. Um, and we can't solve the problem of Amazon in our society, worker by worker, organizer by organizer, person by person. And so what you see in places like Southern California is that same kind of construction of a community of concern. So there um, is a lawsuit about the expansion of the freight airport in San Bernardino, which is about the quality of life in a community entirely dominated by e-commerce and the warehouses there. And even though Amazon um, is not Amazon's going through intermediaries to expand the airport for freight, and so um, it's up to the community of people who work at Amazon, who might work at Amazon, and who certainly live around Amazon to say, like, it's not just the developer; it's also Amazon driving down our quality of life here. Similarly, in New York, Nashville, and Northern Virginia, and the fights around HQ two and subsidies there, it's it's neighbors saying, you're devastating our community and you treat your workers badly. And we are the workers who are going to go work in these facilities, or we are the workers who did work in those facilities. And together we form a community and we can build enough power locally to make different choices. And I think we're beginning to see the green shoots of that. Um, and I'm excited to build more power to stop them more. But what we think at Athena is that it's going to take everyone. It's going to take those local efforts. It's going to take those facility-based efforts. It's going to take national efforts around antitrust and um, anti-monopoly bro more broadly. And it's going to take international and global solidarity. Um, I will add this in closing, I think, since I'm mindful of the time, that um, in thinking about the 19th century as a helpful reference point, we should not overlook the ways in which um, European colonization and American colonization helped drive capitalism and helped push um, the trusts and the other mega firms of those days. Of, and that the thing about space or the thing about monetizing every little bit of the production process from the time you open the browser till the time the package arrives on your door is not dissimilar from that expansion of extraction. That logic of needing to find, all, always needing to find external inputs for what's inherently an unstable system. Um, and at Athena, we think a lot about labor history. We think about the mine wars. We think about um, the company towns around mills and around factories. But we also think a lot about anti-colonial struggles and the ways in which those two things can be knit in ways in which we might resist Amazon in the here and now and continue to build a vision for what it is we want and the private sector or Amazon's role in a community where everyone has clean air and clean water and excellent transit and top-notch education and um, everything they need to thrive. Um, I will say uh, that the fight against Amazon will require lots of different things. I don't think that a traditional unionization model uh, is going to be the main or the only, certainly not the only uh, sort of 
model we need to improve even just the working conditions in, in warehouses. So, um, okay, workers in Alabama have lost that, that unionization drive. Uh, RWDS, RW, WDSU uh, had experience of that in that they tried very hard to unionize Walmart, uh, you know, investing resources, money, people, and, they, and Walmart is still union-free in the, in, in the States, I think. So the turnover rate and the, the, the union-busting techniques uh, may prevent um, um, Amazon workers in the States from reaching the kind, of, the kind of unionization level you have in places like Europe where you don't need to hold the vote to unionize a workplace. Although in Europe, what mainstream unions have done at Amazon is mostly normalizing the most extreme components of uh, the condition of the people who work there. So it's nothing revolutionary, but, uh, you know, for example, keeping mandatory overtime in check, making sure that the most, the most blatantly legal practices are dropped. Um, so that's what unions in Europe have been doing. I think they've been successful at the, you know, these little steps, but still uh, uh, major changes in people's um, daily life, uh, for sure. Um, um, I think the, the turnover rate, the kind of workers that join Amazon, the 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 uh, the composition of that newer, uh, younger, most irrationalized workforce that's been, that has been joining Amazon in the last, uh, especially in, especially in the last year, but in the last few years at least, uh, also uh, is going to be interesting in terms of the practices that they will uh, come up with in terms of fighting Amazon at the, at the at the workplace level or even at the international level. So I think that's still to be seen. And we will have examples from early industrial capitalism of, of very successful uh, fights against monster corporations that were, that were driven by similar, uh, uh, you know, kind of workforces, um, in a sense. Um, so uh, I want to say that the, the, the technological layer is also still important. Amazon uh, knows that workers uh, are the key to producing value. Um, Amazon knows that workers will will resist uh, its goals. Uh, they the goals of the workers diverge from the goals of of the company. Uh, so uh, workers have agency and can change and can change stuff. Uh, uh, workers will push for democracy. Uh, workers will push for for slower uh, you know rhythms and maybe maybe for uh, uh, better relationships with machines rather than. Uh, uh, you know, alienating relationships with machines. So Amazon Amazon needs to counter that, and they're doing whatever they can to introduce new technology. Uh, you know, together with political moves and together with other you know managerial techniques, but also technology is always at the forefront of what Amazon does. So just one example of a patent Amazon owns. I don't know if if anyone has seen uh, Sleep Dealer, this science fiction movie from uh, 2008, I think, by uh, 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 Alex Rivera. Uh, that's a movie that imagines a world where uh, Mexican workers work in sweatshops in Tijuana and they control, they, they basically log into this system, like you know, their body is actually linked to, to, to this AI system and they operate robots in the States, like construction robots in the States. So Amazon owns patents for very similar technologies where the workers can, you know, cheap labor from... Um, uh, uh, a country in the global south can operate sophisticated robots in a warehouse in in New York. Um, so you can have the labor without without the need to import the the bodies of the workers with all their um, you know requests, problems they generate, and maybe even unions they join. So I think this is this is just one example. But the point is that Amazon is using technology continuously to, in, in this catch up game to try to control its workforce and increase its power over it. So that's that's also, that's also going to be an interesting area too. Uh, look at. Yeah, there's a real um, uh, feedback loop between the power and the money, right? I think often we think about how much money the workers or the system can make the executives or the corporation, but it's as much about the dominance as it is about the dollars, I think. That sort of thing that Alessandro just said reinforces the importance of the solidarity of the global north with the global south that we aren't going to be able to make gains in the global north that we can really defend um, unless we're doing that in partnership with the people of the global south. And similarly, we aren't going to, if we can, we must make gains to reduce the harm of working at Amazon. And if 
working at Amazon is embedded in a system where you are monitored, surveilled, and extracted from as you go about your whole day and your workplace is a respite from that will make it incredibly hard to protect those gains. And I think that that's what we have learned, certainly in the last 20 years that I've been in the labor movement, is that the more rapacious the outside world becomes, the harder and harder it is to defend even the small modicum of protections that have been so hard won. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to wrap it up here because I know we've been talking for about now. Um, and I just want to thank you both for I think this was a really good stage setting going forward um, for sort of how to keep in mind all the different moving parts. Um, and I'll just add that, you know, as we're recording um, just a couple days ago, Amazon released its big plan about how to address these working conditions. You know, it's finally heard. It's hearing you. It's seeing you. It is going to do better. Um, and this press release, I mean, the story Alessandro just told about this patent is, you know, Amazon is so dystopian in ways that, you know, you could not make up if you tried. Um, and, you know, one thing that pops out from this press release is um, Amazon is creating a program called Amazon, um, which will, as the press release says, it will guide employees through mindfulness practices in individual interactive kiosks at buildings during shifts, employees can visit Amazon stations and watch short videos featuring easy-to-follow well-being activities, including guided meditations, positive affirmations, calming scenes with sounds, and more. So this is what Capital sees as a, a fix to all the problems we're laying out. Um, and it's the flip side of what Alessandro described, which is also um, finding a way to use labor without using actual people. Um, to actually alienate them from their own bodies and have their bodies control machines elsewhere is a very extreme version of what employers are always doing. Um, and, you know, Amazon in this, you know, it's big announcement here and it's trying to, you know, quash the criticisms we're all raising that we've all, you know, seen and spoken to workers who are experiencing. They're spending $300 million on this whole safety plan. And, um, you know, the first quarter revenue, yeah, that's what they say they're spending. And I just, to put it in perspective, the company's first quarter revenue was over $100 billion. So that puts this at about 0.2% of revenue is going to um, making sure workers aren't um, dying and otherwise experiencing psychological distress. So the company is uh, willing to give about one penny to these things. So there's a lot of, lot of work to be done. Um, thank you both so much. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's it. That's the first episode. Thank you so much for everyone who tuned in, checked out the show. Um, again, you can follow us on Twitter at primed underscore podcast. And if you support what we're doing, you want to make us do it better, put more work into it and so on. Make sure we produce a, something that really is lasting and useful for people going forward. You can subscribe at patreon.com backslash primed podcast. And I just want to thank you all so much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.